I couldn't have broken this one already. <laughs> oh, man, and uh, yeah, they don't trust me. Good to be with you. And again, this is our first Sunday. Those of you online, we got three venues. Uh, outside here at 9, inside at 1045, and uh, online. So hopefully you're inviting your friends, family, and letting people know that we're going to get together and uh, in, enjoy God. And we've got a summer series coming. We're calling it uh, Should the Church Change? Got a lot of stuff going on in culture. And so we're going to spend uh, the summer examining some uh, contemporary topics, and we just want to approach this uh, honestly as we can, but should we be changing the way we think and the way we view and maybe even uh, the way we uh, live life? But for now, we're uh, continuing to move through Corinthians. Now, I hate being deceived. I hate when things don't turn out the way I would like. I was getting a Christmas gift here a few years ago from my wife, and I was shopping online for a designer purse. And I found one at a screaming deal. I was so excited for my wife to open this on Christmas, and of course it arrived, and I look at you, and I looked at it, and you guys can tell where this is going already. It was not a genuine purse. It had this name of the designer on this piece of plastic, which had been formed in, in permanent now, now, here's the worst part. Here's the worst part. My daughter, who was about 18 at the time, had warned me. She'd been watching me shop online, and she goes, Dad, you're going to get ripped off. This is not the real deal. And I had not heeded her warning. Thought I knew better. Keep going. Pretend I'm not here. Pretend he's not here. I am not that good a pretender. <laughs> Paul is trying to warn us in the text. He's trying to warn the Corinthians. And he's concerned. He told us back in chapter 3, don't be self-deceived. We're going to see it again this morning. Don't be deceived. And here's what he's afraid. The Corinthians, uh, where they're deceived and, and where we might be deceived is is when we come to faith and trust in Christ, we don't get made perfect, but we get a different value system. We get different priorities. We're convinced there's joy in God that will never be found anywhere else. So that changes the way we live. It changes our attitudes. It changes our behaviors. And Paul's concern is that the Corinthians don't really get that. They think they can treasure Christ and not really be experiencing this ongoing spiritual transformation. That doesn't actually have to be a sign of their genuinely treasuring Christ. I lost a hundred bucks buying a fake purse. hundred bucks. I don't love ever losing a hundred bucks. I was deceived. But we want to be paying special attention here because the warning Paul gives us, if we do not heed it, has far more tragic consequences. Now, the ways the Corinthians were deceived, he's been giving us a list here. 
Um, and here's the big idea. The Corinthians are, are still living by the world values of the culture more than by Christian values. Now, it's a new church. It's the first time there are believers in Corinth. To some degree, it makes sense. But he's described disunity at some length, arrogance, elevating messengers of the gospel into celebrities, sexual immorality. We looked at that for the last couple of weeks. That's another one of those he develops. But he's mentioned greed, idolatry, reviling, just speaking evil of one another, drunkenness, swindling. And the problem, again, is that they're not troubled by these inconsistencies. They're living with this sin in their life, and they're going, it's okay. It doesn't bother me. Now, he's going to jump into one more that he's going to develop. He developed dis, disuni, uh, disunity, and he's developed sexual immorality. And this morning, he's going to develop one more. Not able to settle disputes among themselves. They got problems. They got issues. And they can't solve it within the church family. They're not able to find forgiveness and reconciliation. So they're taking disputes outside of the church. So here's the text. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11 this morning. 1 through 8, he's pulling apart that they're, they're bringing one another to court. And then when we go to 9 to 11, he's going to go back to the big idea of the book, which is, I'm afraid for you. I'm concerned for you. There are some of you that are claiming you love Christ, but your life is actually manifesting that you did not. Verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be uh, judged by you, you are, uh, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brother. Father, I pray that you will open up this text to us. And that you will help us to leave here a little more in love with Jesus. If we have sin in our life that you need to speak to us about, I pray that you would empower us to hear your voice. We just walk by faith and we want to walk by full faith. And Father, on this matter of genuine faith, Father, I pray that there would not be one of us who is deceived. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, what's certainly going on in this original situation is you got some brothers in the church family, and this is over finances, this is over stuff, this is over money. And they can't resolve it among themselves, so they go to the court system to try and solve this to see who's supposed to get what money and who is treated unfairly. So we're to, the big idea positively is we're to resolve our disputes among ourselves. So let's be clear. He's not saying there won't be disagreements, disputes, and hurts in the church family. Let's just start there. Because we're not in a glorified perfect state yet, 
We are going to hurt one another. We are going to offend one another. But here's Paul's positive principle. We ought to be able to solve that ourselves and work to reconciliation. And we ought not need go outside the church family to resolve our disputes. That is not a healthy sign and a good sign when we need to do that. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? You're taking a fellow believer, a brother or sister, you're taking them to court for pity's sakes because you can't resolve this issue. So why shouldn't we go outside the church family? And Paul, we're going to walk through this fairly quickly. I think application-wise, there are very few instances that I'm aware of, of brothers and sisters in, in Christ suing one another and going to court. So we're, we're going to walk through this because I think seeing his argument will help us and hopefully motivate us even more towards reconciliation. In my experience, rather than going to court, we just live with stuff. We just live with it and hold a grudge. Let's be assured that ain't good either. So why shouldn't we go outside the church family? And I want you to notice Paul's argument here. God trusts us to help Jesus judge the world. Now just back up and process that just for a second if you haven't thought about it. God trusts us to help Jesus at the second coming judge the world. You feel empowered? When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, I don't think it's judge the world in the, in, in the sense that he goes, hey, Jesus comes up to Daniel in the eternal state and goes, Daniel, I'm having a little trouble deciding how I should judge Fred. You know, I'm just on the fence. Do I save him? Do I not save him? Daniel, what do you think? I don't think that's what he's talking about here. What he's trying to give us a picture is this great hope that we're all to have about when Christ returns. When we die and go to heaven, that's going to be great. But the triumphant hope and the focus of Scripture is when Jesus comes back, this eternal state, and we're going to share in Jesus' glory, and we're going to be there judging those who do not love him. What Paul's trying to suggest is that's a significant responsibility. That's a greater responsibility than any earthly judge has ever had. That's going to be given to us. So if God trusts us with such a significant task, we must be capable of handling less significant issues. Now again, somebody's internal destiny Everything else is less consequential. Or do you not know that the saints, verse 2, will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent? Now, he's getting somewhat sarcastic again here. Do you consider yourself incompetent to try trivial cases? And I don't think he means trivial in, in that they're not significant. In comparison to judging the world, they're trivial. They're less important. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? If God's entrusting that to us at the second coming, he's trusting us now to sort things out. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing 
in the church. So using secular folks to settle our disputes is a sign we are not very mature. Pick it up at verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Now, a couple of chapters ago, he was getting after him. He said to them, I'm not telling this to shame you. Now he's telling them, I am telling you this to shame you. You're taking brothers and sisters to court to get stuff. That is not good. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. This is a terrible display of Christian unity. Remember Jesus said, this is how people are going to know. This is going to be the greatest witness that you are my disciples, your love for one another. Paul's saying you ought to be ashamed of behavior, again, that you're endorsing. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So we ought to care more about God's glory and our loving one another than always being treated fairly and getting what even a court might say is justly ours. How many of you love that point? Okay, I see the hands where Paul actually suggests to us we would be willing to live with less that the world would say we are actually owed. That's not fair. Nope. But he's saying we got a higher value system. We got a higher priority. God's glory. Verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? May I see the hands of those who look forward to being defrauded? May I see your hands? May I see the hands of those folks who look forward to being wronged? Paul says as those who treasure Christ, who get there's an eternal destiny and Jesus is coming back and every wrong will eventually be set right. Every wrong will eventually be accounted for and we will in fact be there on that day to judge. Now I'm hoping the attitude is not this. I'm just giving it up now because on that day they are going to get what's coming to them and I will give it to them on that day. But there ought to be a sense. Whatever wrong we occur, we'll be prayed for. Now, if it's from a brother and sister, our hope is that they might actually see forgiveness, make sure they're right in Christ, and be forgiven too. So we might never see whatever earthly thing we are owed. But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Here's he's saying, some of you are taking one another to court, and you're actually cheating each other. This is despicable. Some of you aren't just standing up for what you're owed. Some of you are trying to cheat your brother or your sister. That is just wrong. Now stay with me here. 
because we're going to walk through present-day implications. And remember, this is just one illustration of the many he's given us since the end of chapter 1, where the Corinthians' lives are not reflecting that they treasure Christ. Present-day implications. Let's be careful. Our legal system is far more developed than the Corinthians, far more developed than that they were dealing with. We're not saying that those in our legal system are unjust or unbelievers. I know lots of folks in the law, known a, a, a judge. I know of other judges that love Christ and treasure God. So we are not disparaging our legal system in its way beyond. Again, the Corinthians were the only Christians in Corinth when Paul writes this letter. So when they went to court, it was assured that there weren't believers there helping them sort it out. It's a different place. It's not about our interaction with unbelievers. This is about believers treating believers. So Paul is not talking about how we interact with unbelievers and whether or not we would take them to court. Everybody following me there? That's not what this is about. This is about those taking a brother or sister to Christ. Sometimes the legal system is helpful. If you ask me in my 35 years of doing this pastoral gig, where has it been most helpful? Uh, most helpful in cases of uh, divorce. Oftentimes helpful. And helping people process and figure out how to move on. With that said, though, let's understand this has never been God's design for how it would work. Obviously not the design for how marriage would work either. And it's, it's always a sign of uh, our brokenness. To some, always the people involved, but let's say as well, let's just acknowledge maybe the church and not being as good as we could at helping other people find reconciliation. What he is saying, as Christ treasures, we should be able to resolve relational disputes among ourselves. We ought to be able to love one another. Some of us might be feeling good because we didn't take them to court. But we're holding a grudge. And we feel warranted. Because they actually cheat us. They actually hurt us. This is righteous indignation, my anger towards this person that abused me. Oh, and for those of you online, I have been rebuked for walking more, so I will stand more still. Forgive me. <laughs> See how I resolve that without going to outside assistance? <laughs> Just trying to model for you reconciliation and what it looks like. So those of us holding grudges, the point is a positive one. Remember what Paul has told us about who we are. We've been sanctified in Christ. We are recipients of God's grace. We're not lacking any spiritual gift. We are, for pity's sakes, possessing the Spirit of God in us. And my favorite one, my favorite hymn captures this thought that Paul talked about earlier. We have the mind of Christ. So Paul's saying, live like it. And the challenge here is he writes to the Corinthians, I think he's saying to them that I, something I said to all my kids several times as they were growing up, all four of them, you're a Chapman, but Chapmans don't live like this. 
Now you understand the problem was they were at Chapman and they were living like we said a Chapman didn't live like. Everybody following me? And that's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians and maybe us. You're a treasure of Christ. And treasures of Christ don't live this way. They just don't. The problem is, again, they are. So that's another illustration. He's listed a bunch of things, but, but one he develops a little more. Now we're going to go back to, I think, the big idea in many ways of the book. Paul's concern. Got these folks claiming they love God. He doesn't know. He's not God, but he's concerned by their attitudes and their behavior that they might not really get what genuine faith looks like. And his point here is we don't genuinely love Jesus. This is the warning. Quite frankly, I don't care if you buy a fake purse. I'd encourage you not to be duped. But in the grand scheme of life, not that big a deal. Missing this one, this is a big deal. So we don't genuinely love Christ. Now we're going to read these verses. Now we're jumping to uh, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now you notice this is flowing right out of what he just said. Again, we're following the flow of thought. You're taking one another to court is a bad sign. You're not. Pursuing reconciliation with one another is a bad sign. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We have this power to not be controlled and dominated. So we're deceived if we think we can embrace sin and be a genuine follower of Christ. I think this is the theme he's been building through the whole book. And he punctuates it at different times and he keeps circling around and coming to it. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I think he has quotes of Jesus like this, Matthew 7. There's going to be some people that will be able to claim they did miracles and cast out demons and they preached in Jesus' name. And yet Jesus is going to say to those folks, I never knew you. Now, I don't know about you, but I would call casting out demons and doing miracles pretty extraordinary expressions of faith. This is not a message popular in evangelicalism today. It's just easier, I'll tell you, to make people feel comfortable. You're good. Maybe. Now, here's how I'm going to define unrighteous as Paul is using it here. Here's my understanding of in this literary context what he means by unrighteous. Those claiming they love Jesus who are not convicted and fighting the temptation to sin for the greater joy in Jesus. 
Now, in some cultures of church, fighting sin is just this. Fight it, fight it, fight it. Join an accountability group, and what we're going to do is ask you what your sins were. And then we're going to try and challenge you to not sin. I think the solution is actually offering something better. Jesus. Jesus. Now, when we find Jesus, here's the problem. It doesn't remove the temptation to find illicit pleasures in some of the things he gives us. Doesn't just take it us away. But this is about finding the greater joy in Jesus. Let's just go here. God created us to be happy. I believe every decision everybody makes, they make because they think it's going to be happy. I'm going to tell you why sin is appealing. It makes us happy. For a short period of time, and usually brings long-term damage to ourselves and to others. But in the short term, <laughs> that's what makes it hard to resist. Satan dangles that front of us, and it looks good. Ah, man, you talk about appealing. Sin looks appealing. I have never been tempted to an unpleasant sin. I'm just going to tell you, if sin didn't dangle this promise of happiness in front of us, none of us would struggle. <laughs> this is part of the battle. When we die and go in Jesus' media presence or Jesus returns, that will be done. No more fighting it. That is going to be spectacular. But it's the not fighting it that's a problem. It's the endorsing it. Because the reality is we're all going to be tempted by sin. And sometimes we're going to yield. Sometimes we're going to give in. For those of us who genuinely treasure Christ, so we're always fighting and we're always growing. We're fighting it. We understand in this world we're involved in a fight for our lives and a fight for joy. If Satan can't keep us out of heaven, which is Paul's real concern here, he does want us to live with less happiness. He is throwing this artillery. Now, what might tempt you might be different than me. I've shared with you before, one with which I struggle, I have number is food. Now, you may look at me and suggest I'm not fighting it. The reality is I'm fighting it, but I got a bunch of other stuff I'm fighting too. But I'm fighting it. You skinny people, you got something you're fighting too. I just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> but you skinny people, don't you think I don't think you are not facing temptations? Now, I got a bunch of them in my life, but I'm fighting. And that's those who treasure Christ. He's writing to the Corinthians because they're not fighting. And we're never going to endorse sin as acceptable to God or us. That's the problem. Those are the folks that he's trying to warn. Those people, whatever it is. Now, righteous then. How would I define righteous? He doesn't mention that, but in this sense, I would say those loving Jesus, and I've already said this, you probably don't even need to read it. We could just skip over it, but I put it up there, so we're going to look at it anyway. Those loving Jesus as evidenced 
by their fighting the temptation to sin for the greater joy in Jesus. So when I overeat, I'm not endorsing that. I'm going, Lord, I should be finding a joy in you that I'm looking for this fourth piece of pie to meet. You got it. The way sin manifests is varied. Look at this list. Now, I don't believe this is comprehensive. What Paul's trying to help us understand is it's not just disunity. It's not just sexual immorality. Sin can be manifest in a gazillion ways. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the, 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 the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, a lot on sex, a powerful motivation and a powerful drive in our lives that God's created for our good, but these are all illicit expressions. Uh, sexually immoral, lots of ways, adulterers outside of marriage, homosexuality, I think that one's pretty clear, but God created sex, that's a good thing. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You know, I'm feeling better. He didn't mention overeating. I'm good. Oh, and thank the Lord here in Orange County, he didn't mention materialism. He's not trying to give a comprehensive list. He's trying to help us understand this temptation to sin. Oh, and he didn't mention gossip. He's trying to help us understand this temptation to sin comes in limitless forms. Now, in the church, I think sometimes we make some worse than others. Talk about that a little bit in our summer series. You might guess where we go. It's just controlling us and us not fighting it. And we used to be controlled by sin. Pick it up at uh, verse, uh, let's just pick it up at 11. And such were some of you, and I think he's talking about some of you were involved in some of these sins specifically. I don't think he's suggesting that there was anybody there who was not controlled by sin. He's just saying all of you weren't controlled by drunkenness. All of you weren't controlled by homosexuality. There were, there were other things. I think always, from time to time, good to go back and reflect on what we were saved from. Now, as we think back on those things that used to control us and own us, I hope no more sense of guilt or shame that has been forgiven. But I think it's always good to go back and just remember, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And those friends, those work associates that are struggling with this stuff, I used to be there too. They're still in the bondage I used to have, where I didn't have the power of Christ to overcome this. It was eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die because there was no other alternative. That is to be trapped. That is to be in bondage. 
Paul's saying we have been set free because Jesus washed away our sin. And such were some of you. Now, again, with my kids, this is the way I said it. Chapmans don't live like that. Paul is saying to folks, you've been washed, but you're living like the dirt is still on you. Not that you're tempted, not that you're not occasionally given in, but that you're not fighting this. You're living in filth, and it doesn't bother you. That is a problem. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, we have been justified. Our legal standing has been forever changed. We are new creatures, still wrestling with this stuff, but we are new creatures. Our legal standing before God has been changed forever and ever and ever. We are going to judge the world and the angels one day when Jesus comes back. He comes back and we are going to share in his glory. Right now, Paul's made clear, people in the world think we're stupid. I guarantee you, when Jesus comes back, there is not going to be one person that thinks us stupid. Not one. Not one. We've been justified. Our legal standing has been changed, and we have been sanctified. He's emphasizing here the idea that that sanctification process, what we call ongoing spiritual transformation, has begun. And it's continuing. It's ongoing. Because here's what we realize. We look at sin increasingly, and we go, it looks fun, but it's a little less tempting because we got the Holy Spirit in us. We got the mind of Christ, and we go, it's going to be fun for a short while, and then I'm going to feel guilty, and it's going to hurt me, and it's going to hurt those others in my circle of relationship. If I don't give in to sin, there's a greater joy, and the freedom is not giving in to the sin. The freedom is in pursuing the greater joy that's in Jesus. Does that mean we will live without the immediate joy of sin? Yes. For the greater joy that comes with living a life that reflects who Jesus is in us. That is way better and way more lasting. So, God's done a radical work in our lives. We are followers of Christ. We are treasures of Christ. We are Christians. So we're going to live like it. But we're going to acknowledge we're in a fight. It is a fight for joy. I don't think Satan ever lets up. He's trying to keep us from going to heaven. And if he can't do that, he's trying to rob our joy here. We're in a fight, guys. If you're not feeling the fight, please call me. If you're not able to identify the fight, I would love to talk with you. So what do we do? We fight. We fight. We don't fight those people out there that are in bondage to Satan. We don't fight those folks that God has put here to help us introduce to Christ. We fight Satan and his attempt to deceive us. We're going to listen to Paul better than I listen to my daughter, Caden. 
And the key to that is personal communion with God, hanging with God. In his word, in prayer, connecting with him. Finding the joy that he intends for us to find in that relationship with him. And then communing with other believers. Ah, it's the purpose of the church, guys. It's why he puts us together. That together we might promote the glory of God in a culture that's hurting. That they might see in us a joy and a love that they see in no other community of faith. That we might encourage one another to love Christ more. And then from time to time, because we love one another, we might challenge one another. That means we got to open up to one another. We've all got something to give. We've all got something to receive. So we share our lives. And if there's anybody here that you think is not struggling with temptation to sin, that is a mistaken worldview. We are all in this battle, and here's the cool part. We are in... Hey, would you do me a fist bump? Oh, that, wasn't, that looked a little condemning the way I said it. Thank you. <laughs> Forgive me for that immediate response. Another modeling. You guys are catching it? We are in this together, promoting God's glory, encouraging one another. And what are we fighting for? God's glory and our joy. Father, thanks for loving us. Thanks for giving us this word. We want to be increasingly influenced by our love for you and our growing picture of your glory. Father, we're living in a culture that, at least to me, feels to embrace principles that come from you less and less. Feels to me. My prayer is that you will help us to navigate this road. My prayer is that you will wrap your loving arms around us, that you will draw us close, and that you will use us to genuinely, in love and grace, encourage one another, challenge one another. I pray that there would never be one of us who would speak the truth where it just wasn't washed in love. I pray that we would act that way towards everyone. But help us to speak the truth for your glory and for our ever-increasing joy.